Welcome to the Inquiring Mind Podcast with me, Stanley Goldberg. Today, I'll be speaking with Michael Woodsworth, who's a teacher at the Bard High School Early College in Queens, New York. He teaches a wide variety of subjects on American history, and his most recent book, which is central to our discussion, called Battle of Bed-Stuy, The Long War on Poverty in New York City, which I highly recommend. In this podcast, we discuss the success of some great society programs, the story of a neighborhood that is actually a microcosm for New York City, and a variety of other subjects. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider subscribing to the Inquiring Mind podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. And consider following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And now, without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Michael Woodsworth. Michael Woodsworth, welcome to the Inquiring Mind podcast. Thank you. So, uh, again, uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. You know, we've been shuffling around some dates. I'm glad we can finally do it. Uh, We're going to discuss, for the most part, your book that I have right here. Battle for Bed-Stuy. Can you explain why you wrote the book and what what fascinated you about Bed-Stuy? Yeah, um, great questions. And thanks for having me. I'm I'm excited to do this. Um, And it's nice to see someone holding up a fresh looking copy of the book. (laughs) Um, So this book started as um, my um, dissertation, PhD dissertation in grad school. I went to Columbia. And um, the beginning of it was um, a project about the community action program of the war on poverty, which I'm sure we'll talk about a bit later on. And one of the things that interested me coming at the program of the war on poverty when I started this project, which is in around 2007, 2008. So right before um, Obama was elected and kind of during the presidential campaign of 2008, as I was getting going on this project, I was really interested in the difference between how Americans seem to be talking about inequality and poverty in the present and how it had been discussed in what seemed to me a much more ambitious uh, frame of reference in the 1960s. And I was also really interested in in, in this idea of the war on poverty, which in the dominant discourse up to kind of about 15 years ago, had really been portrayed as a failure. Um, Ronald Reagan had said, you know, we fought a war on poverty and poverty won, and that description kind of stuck. So those were questions that interested me. And um, there, there were a few case studies of the war on poverty at the time. Different neighborhoods had been looked at, um, different approaches had been taken, um, but nobody had really written about what had happened in Brooklyn which is where I was living. And I was intrigued because I knew that there'd been a lot done there. And I knew that there'd been this big program by Bobby Kennedy that had been launched in Bed-Stuy, which some folks had kind of written about, but there hadn't been any kind of comprehensive study of this. So I decided that that's what I would do. And uh, um, I didn't know very much at that point about Bedford-Stuyvesant. I didn't live there. I, I went there as an outsider, but the more I dug and the more kind of um, moments of archival serendipity that, came, that, that, that I had and the, the more things I found and the more people I met, I realized that this neighborhood was in and of itself definitely a, a worthy subject of, of study. So the book ended up being both a case study of a neighborhood and also kind of a, an analysis of, of the policy genealogy of the war on poverty. Yeah, what's interesting about the war on poverty is language, right? Uh, it's usually like, you know, people can have policies combating poverty, but we talk about poverty in, in very warlike terms. What was the reasoning behind calling it the war on poverty? Hmm. Yeah, it's, that's a really interesting thing to talk about. And I just an hour ago was teaching my Cold War America class uh, to my students who are early college students. And we were talking about LBJ and talking about the war on poverty. And we watched this ad, which I encourage you to watch if you haven't, and uh, our listeners should, should check it out, which is um, one of Johnson's election campaign ads from 1964, uh, which, where he's running on the war on poverty, which is kind of a stunning thing for him to be doing. 
Um, and the ad is just the succession of images of uh, still images of children, suffering children, crying, um, dirty, uh, seemingly in lots of duress. And in the background, there's, there's a little kind of blues guitar playing and the, the, the narrator's talking over it, talking about how poverty is um, not a trait of character. Uh, it's a systemic failure. This is something that people who are ensnared in cannot control. Um, and thus a war on poverty needs to be waged to rescue these Americans who've been left behind. So we were, I was talking about this with the students and they've been studying the Cold War all semester. And we were talking about how that's actually a really stunning thing for a president to say in the moment of, of the Cold War to kind of institutionalize the fight against poverty. Because what that implies then is a fight against wealth inequality and some sort of redistributive program, which then implies, you know, perhaps the road to socialism. And that was indeed the critique of people like Reagan um, and folks on the right of the Great Society programs was that this was the first step on the path to socialism. What did it mean to use the analogy of war? Um, Johnson launched the war on poverty just at the moment that he was about to start escalating in Vietnam. Uh, this was a moment where American society was really kind of deeply um, entrenched in all kinds of martial rhetoric. The Cold War had you know, reached its peak arguably two years earlier with the Cuban Missile Crisis. So people were very familiar with, with martial language. They were very familiar with the language of war. They were familiar with, um, with the fear of war and the idea of kind of total mobilization. So what Johnson was doing and his speechwriters um, was to take that idea of total mobilization and, and national commitments to this kind of overwhelming evil and apply it domestically. That was, I think, quite useful to them in some ways. And we could talk about how they managed to mobilize the grassroots around this idea of war. It was also a very risky strategy because it raised expectations almost impossibly high. Yeah. And how was the, the war on poverty received in neighborhoods such as Bed-Stuy that are historically ignored by politicians and ignored by uh, city officials? What was their, how did they receive the war on poverty and did they believe that the initiative would actually reach them or did they think it was just another kind of for show uh, policy? I mean, kind of all of the above, <laughs> but so, so there's a couple of ways of answering that. Um, one of the, you know, the subtitle of my book is the long war on poverty in New York City. And one of the contentions that, that I'm making in this work is to show that the war on poverty was not just something that Lyndon Johnson declared in a State of the Union address on January 8th, 1964, but rather a, a, a policy reaction to a whole set of initiatives that had been going on at the local level in places like Bed-Stuy um, and very much fostered by municipal governments, particularly um, Robert F. Wagner's um, government in New York City and later John Lindsay. Um, and so Johnson's overarching policy framework that he was applying was very useful to these folks in trying to achieve the policy goals that, they, that they, they've been working at for years. It was also in some ways um, a reaction to the civil rights struggle and an effort to institutionalize um, in an economic framework some of the ideas that had been coming out of the civil rights movement. Uh, so, you know, you can look at the war on poverty as a, from a, from a top-down perspective and from a bottom-up perspective. Most of the time in my work, I've, I've been looking at it from the bottom-up perspective. So I like your question. Um, what did it mean to them to have Johnson say this? Well, in one part, you have to understand that they'd been pushing toward that kind of thing. They'd been pushing towards neighborhood revitalization efforts and anti-juvenile delinquency efforts and educational reforms and all sorts of things like that, jobs programs for years beforehand. What Johnson's declaration really did was, was to offer this overarching analysis um, of poverty as, as a framework that could unite all of the problems of cities. And I think for people in Bedside, they didn't really talk about poverty all that much before the war on poverty because it was such an obvious fact of life. 
um, and such an overwhelming problem in some ways that they, the idea of just addressing poverty as it is was not something that they thought was, was a reasonable um, kind of goal. But once that policy goal was out there, they absolutely took it and ran with it um, and, and greeted it quite enthusiastically. Um, and of course that enthusiasm within a short period of time turned into quite a bit of turmoil and eventually disillusion. Yeah, what's interesting, for example, when you read uh, Caro's uh, analysis of LBJ is how Johnson actually used Kennedy's legacy to his advantage. So there is a there are a lot of scenes where uh, the Kennedys, especially well, LBJ had a really contentious relationship with Bobby Kennedy, not not so much Jack, um, and. Most of the time, you you refer to the vice president of the United States as Mr. Vice President, and he would be referred to as uh, Lyndon. And that drove him crazy because he wanted the respect the office deserves and and he wanted, you know, he 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 ascended to this position. But what's interesting is after Kennedy's death, how he mobilized almost le Kennedy's legacy and the moment to push through a lot of well, big government policies. Uh, can you touch on how he did that? And uh, was it popular among, you know, politicians at the time? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, there's that, that quote from Johnson, where he said he wanted to take the dead man's program and turn it into a martyr's cause. And uh, um, there's this anecdote from I guess it's from Bill Moyers, which I was reading about in this book by Joshua Zeitz, Building the Great Society. I was reading about it, preparing for my class today, but where Johnson was sitting, sitting down at his desk and making columns of uh, the various periods of his presidency. This is like within days of the Kennedy assassination, um, charting out his presidency all the way up through 1973 and what he would accomplish in those different moments. Um, and then in conversation with Moyer said, actually, we really only have until 1967, because after that, we'll lose our majorities in Congress. And after that, it'll be a struggle. So he was he, he was incredibly ambitious about where he wanted to go with his presidency and also very much imbued with a sense of urgency, understanding that he, he could and should capitalize on Kennedy's death to get a lot of stuff through, um, gain reelection, uh, gain large majorities in Congress or maintain his majorities. Um, and do everything that he wanted to do in a short period of time. Uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of debate or there, there has been a lot of debate in academic circles about, you know, the effectiveness of Kennedy's presidency. Uh, I think you, you see this interesting disjuncture between the general public who thinks he's a fantastic president and a lot of scholars who think he didn't do a lot. Uh, and he, he's, what is undeniable is that there was a lot in the Kennedy administration that was kind of starting to bubble up by the time of the assassination. A lot of initiatives that, that were on the table, famously the civil rights bill was there, uh, but there was this thinking about poverty. Uh, Walter Heller in the Council of Economic Advisors has start, had started to uh, put together groups of people to talk about how they might approach poverty. They were talking about Appalachia, um, there was this President's Committee on Juvenile Delinquency under Bobby Kennedy, which had started funding urban programs, you know, ostensibly targeting youth crime, but also beginning to think about the various different root causes of youth crime and how those might come together. And all of those things were very, very quickly tied together after Johnson became president in the war on poverty. You know, he heard about it from Heller soon after the assassination and said, that's my kind of program, push ahead full tilt. I wanna do that. I'm gonna put my stamp on the presidency through this, the war on poverty. Um, I guess you, you asked about how popular it was. Um, I wasn't sure, do you mean how popular it was among the general public or among policymakers? Or? Well, I think my question at first was the policymakers, but I think the better question is the one you asked first, is it, was it popular among the general public? Yeah, I, I think like kind of surprisingly so, I, I think at first. Um, obviously Johnson won a huge majority in the 1964 election. Um, we can't say that was because of the, the poverty program necessarily, but he was very much running on the Great Society. And I mentioned this ad that he ran 
where he's touting his his war on poverty. Um, he, you know, f famously said upon signing the Civil Rights Act in 1964 that he was signing away the Democratic Party or signing away the South to the Republican Party for a generation and it ended up being many generations. But other than um, the Deep South in Arizona, he won the rest of the country, one of the biggest presidential landslides of all time. So I think his brand of liberalism was fairly popular. Uh, I think um, particularly in the communities that were being targeted by the war on poverty, um, even as those communities were uh, beginning to bubble up in uprisings, uh, starting in the summer of 1964 and then into 1965 with the Watts uprising, the, the violence in American cities and the turmoil and the sense of angst and anger and disillusion was, was growing. I think people also were still at the grassroots level prepared to buy in to, to this program um, and, and to try to give it a whirl and at, at the very least take advantage of the resources that were being offered. Yeah, uh, before we obviously shift to, you know, Bed-Stuy and all the local grassroots issue, I have one, uh, I, I can't guarantee it's the last OBJ question. He's one of the most fascinating yeah. characters to read about. I've always been curious about what people think of his intention, right? Mm -hmm. Because to me, when you read about LBJ, there's that uh, almost idealistic part of him where he wants to have these big, bold government initiatives. But for me, it just seems like it was his way. He used it as a way of, of using his presidency and his power and creating all these extra government programs would give him an extra arm to his power. Um, so do you think this is a complicated question because I, I don't know the answer to this and I, I haven't seen a lot of people being able to answer. Do you think uh, LBJ should be remembered as this kind of forward-looking, almost reviving the New Deal uh, president or a person that just wants to wield power? Well, both. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, I, I don't I don't think that we can disentangle those two sides of, of, of LBJ. I mean, he's he's a, endlessly fascinating because those questions are um, very difficult to resolve. Just as the other question, which I don't want to get us too far off track, but can we um, acknowledge the um, monumental aspect of LBG uh, LBJ's? Um, progressive achievements while also keeping in the other side of our mind the disaster of Vietnam. Uh, so, so there are these paradoxes. About the political side of it, um, he was not the first Democrat to make the calculus um, about how electoral politics would look in the aftermath of the Great Migration. And um, it was clear, I think, at, at the time um, that Johnson, but also urban policymakers, uh, people like Robert Wagner um, in New York City, were understanding that the political game had changed in, in northern cities. And with a massive exodus of um, African Americans from the south, where by and large they couldn't vote, to the north, where by and large at least if they registered, they could, although registration rates were pretty low in the 1960s um, among black voters in, in cities in the North. Nonetheless, there's like great political potential in black voters. Um, so that was certainly something that Kennedy thought about and Johnson and a lot of people in the Democratic Party. Pursuing civil rights and economic opportunity um, for black people was obviously like an electoral winner. But was that an electoral winner nationally? Not necessarily. And there's some indication that Johnson, as I mentioned earlier, with civil rights was, was clear that this was a pretty big risk to take um, and that he would probably lose the strongholds of the, of the solid South. And um, so it's, you know, I think other people could give you better answers than, than, than I could on this because the, you know, I haven't actually really looked um, as a researcher into what people in LBJ's like political circles and what his advisors were telling him about specifically the politics. Um, 
what I can say and what I have looked at as, as a researcher is uh, how people in neighborhoods like Bed-Stuy were thinking about the Democratic Party. And um, the New York City Democratic Party, and particularly you know, the, the local machines like the Manhattan Democratic Machine and the Brooklyn Democratic Machine, um, had been pretty starkly segregated uh, up to just a few years before the launch of the Great Society. And there were almost no pathways to political party within the regular Democratic Party apparatus for Black New Yorkers. And <clears throat> that's not something that Johnson changed single-handedly, but the War on Poverty programs opened up all sorts of new pathways to political power, um, not only through the Democratic Party, but through all of these new kind of pieces of local government. And so in that sense, you know, maybe what I guess I'm trying to say is like a, a political calculus from the top, um, if you look at it at the grassroots level, was also something that was beneficial. So it, it could be both a, a political game and something that was that was helpful, or at least gave the possibility of helping out people at the local level. Yeah. So to, to shift to your book, um, you start your book by writing about two characters, one well-known, the other less well-known. Uh, one is Senator Robert Kennedy, and the other is a woman named Elsie Richardson. Uh, so the book begins with Robert Kennedy, Senator Robert Kennedy, visiting Bed-Stuy. And you have some really uh, cool pictures, uh, photographs from the time and um, in the book. And Kennedy uh, faced some backlash during his visit. So he, I think the, the whole tour ended in an auditorium, if I'm not mistaken. And he was being almost shouted down and, uh, shouted at, and he left thinking, why the hell do I need this? Like, screw this. I'm never coming back here. But, uh, did that visit and you talk about this in your book, change his mind on the issue of poverty and, how to address it with the black community in Bed-Stuy. Hmm. Yeah, I like, I like that you mentioned that. Um, I do want to talk about Elsie Richardson at some point, but let's answer the question. She, she's next. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, did that visit change his mind? Um, yeah, it did. Uh, and it, it started a commitment to a long-term project in Bed-Stuy that, that he, and particularly his staff, were really... Um, I think um, legitimately and genuinely interested in seeing through. But with, you know, if you're going to ask the question about Kennedy and his commitment to poverty, you have to then ask the same question that you asked about Johnson, which is how much of it was political and how much of it came out of idealism. And my answer again is, you know, a little bit of both. So Kennedy was um, among the original people within his brother's administration to be involved in the programs that later became the War on Poverty. So as I mentioned before, his um, stewardship of the President's Committee on Juvenile Delinquency uh, was partly responsible for the generation of this idea of community action um, and local empowerment to solve local problems, which later became part of the War on Poverty. So he was familiar with a lot of the language that was being used in the War on Poverty, and he considered himself to have been one of the one of the innovators, one of the policy innovators, one of the people who had who had made this thing happen. And in his role as Attorney General, overseeing the Committee on Juvenile Delinquency, he had visited neighborhoods in New York City, um, like Bed Stuy, and he had met with local policymakers to talk about. Um, what was happening in the cities and particularly what was happening with these young men who were joining gangs um, and see, seems to be kind of presenting the specter of urban disorder that would be um, impossible to resolve if the root causes weren't addressed, which was the same kind of thinking that went into the war on poverty. So, you know, he wasn't coming at this as a, you know, a, a, a naive kind of first timer in Bed-Stuy. Uh, and the tour that he went on with Elsie Richardson was, I think, in, in his mind, in the mind of his handlers, something that would be, you know, a good photo op and maybe also a good opportunity to start thinking about launching a program that would demonstrate a new set of ideas about the cities. 
And there was some really serious thinking within Kennedy's staff. There was some people like Adam Olinsky and Peter Edelman and others within his staff who were thinking very carefully um, and seriously about the problem of poverty. And had become very disillusioned with the way the war on poverty was playing out only two years into it. And <clears throat> to take this answer a little bit further and then, I'll, and, and then I'll wrap back to where we started, you know, you mentioned the, the Bobby Kennedy Johnson rivalry. That was another important factor in this. So Bobby Kennedy was maybe or maybe not quite yet in early 1966, sure that he was gonna run for president in 1968, certainly hadn't declared it and probably hadn't made the decision yet. Um, but he was, I think, very keen to develop some form of anti-poverty program and or urban program in reaction to things like the Watts uprising that would go a different way from the way the war on poverty had been going. So when he went to Bed-Stuy, he had all of that in mind. What he wasn't expecting was what you described uh, to meet a bunch of people who already had blueprints for the kind of program they wanted and who were not willing to beat around the bush and pose for photographs with Kennedy, but actually wanted substantive action immediately. Um, and that's where the that's where the clash happened. Yeah, and it's almost, and I guess this is the part of uh, Kennedy and a lot of politicians, even to this day, that is very naive when they walk into a neighborhood and they try to play this kind of savior, savior role. But there are people in the community that have to deal with a lot of the problems that they are trying to address and they already have plans and they want to be listened to. Right. So and this uh, is the story of Elsie Richardson, uh, a character I, I knew nothing about, but is a very, very fascinating. Is she still alive, by the way? No. Um, a very fascinating character. And there was a lot of, as you addressed before, a lot of gang violence going on uh, in Bed-Stuy. And there are a lot of just infrastructure problems and poverty all around. Uh, can you tell the audience the story of Elsie Richardson and how she, I would say, devoted her life to trying to address these these issues. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and she uh, she is not still alive. She she died a decade ago, um, and I was lucky to be able to meet her um, not long, only a few months before she died. Uh, she came up in like everywhere I was looking in my research. So at the while I was doing my my doctoral research was going through all sorts of different archives and every organization I came across seemingly Elsie Richardson was on the board of the organization um, and people I talked to would say, oh, you should, you know, got to talk to Elsie Richardson. Um, and uh, this man called Don Watkins who'd given me a bunch of archives and who I'd been talking about for a while, who'd been a sociologist who was involved in the community in the 1960s, gave me her phone number at the um, nursing home she was staying at and encouraged me to call. And for, I don't, I don't know how long it was, more than a year, I didn't want to call because I was intimidated and I wanted to make sure that like, I knew all of the facts that I wanted to ask her about and I knew all the questions I wanted to ask. And, um, and she had done other oral histories. She'd done an oral history in 1990, which I, that I watched. And there was a um, video that the city had done with her um, a few years earlier, um, a few years before I talked to her. Uh, so she kind of shared her story, but yeah, as you say, she was not particularly well-known character. So anyway, I finally called her up and asked if I could ask her some questions and describe my project. And she said, uh, no, I've already told my story and uh, I don't want to tell it again. And I said, well, I feel like there's some parts of your story that haven't been told. And I'm really interested in hearing more. If, if you wouldn't mind, we could just have a conversation. And she said, well, you're going to have to come see me, but you can only stay for 15 minutes. So I went and she started talking and after 15 minutes, you know, I tried to excuse myself and she, she wouldn't let me go. And, you know, she kept saying, there's one more person you need to hear about one more thing. And I stayed for two and a half hours or something. Um, and she was fascinating and told me all sorts of stories about her life um, and really kind of clarified the overview of the story I ended up telling in the book, uh, which in many ways kind of mapped onto her life. So what was her life? Uh, she was she was born in um, 
1922, her parents were immigrants from the Caribbean. Uh, she was born in Manhattan. Uh, her family was um, displaced uh, by a, an urban renewal project um, in the area that was that later became Lincoln Center. Uh, Bobby, uh, Bobby Moses, Robert Moses. Yeah, correct. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Before that, she had had an experience in during the, the Great Depression, which she, she told me about that day, where her um, family's home had caught fire uh, when she was a child. Um, and it was suspected that it was um, arson uh, because of a landlord who wanted to collect insurance payments on a building that was no longer worth anything. That wasn't proven, but that was the suspicion. And in the fire, some of her neighbors kind of burned to death. And as she told it, her father's last paycheck was sitting folded up in the pocket of his pants in their, in their apartment. And he was about to clamber up a ladder to go back up and get it. And they were trying to convince him not to go up into the fire to collect his last paycheck. And it was at this moment that they heard these people screaming um, as they were about to die. And so that, that experience, she said, really um, uh, got her to think for the rest of her life about what it meant um, to be needy, to be in need, um, and what it meant to be in a moment of crisis. And she never really forgot that. Um, so she moved to Brooklyn in the 1950s uh, and was in initially living in um, the Albany Houses, which is a public housing project. And as she, while she was there, began, became involved in something called the Stuyvesant Community Center, which was doing kind of youth outreach. And um, she was involved in kind of tenants groups and these groups with the gang activity. Uh, but then she later moved into a townhouse of her own and became a homeowner and became involved in block associations. And one of the things that, that I talk about a lot in the book is the, the extent to which Bed-Stuy was at the time, even in 1950s and 60s, a community with a lot of homeowners and a lot of people who lived in brownstones and worked really hard to kind of fix up those brownstones and turn their neighborhood into an elegant place. It was also a community, as you said, with a lot of poverty, a lot of people living in public housing, a lot of people living in extremely overcrowded tenements or brownstones that had been turned into SROs. And Richardson kind of had one foot in both of those worlds. Um, so she, she came from a background of poverty, but um, also represented this kind of aspiring upward mobility. She herself was a school secretary um, and she held down a full-time job while also raising many children and going to school at night and being involved in basically every single community organization. And the organization that she kind of became most associated with was called the Central Brooklyn Coordinating Council. Uh, and that was a kind of um, a coalition of coalitions which brought together like 100 different groups in the neighborhood, many of them block associations, but also church groups and civil rights organizations and kind of fraternal orders and all kinds of social clubs. And there were many kind of politicians who were in and out of that organization. So one of her close friends was Shirley Chisholm, who later became the first black woman elected to Congress, ran for president in 1972. She and Elsie Richardson were, were longtime allies. Um, and while Shirley Chisholm was somebody who took the position in this grassroots organization uh, and translated it into the political arena, into elected office. Richardson never did that, really kind of stayed within community work and activism. And, and what, is, what is the role, because Elsie Richardson obviously is, um, this is very, very central to your book, but what are the roles of people like her because there are other people like her in Bed-Stuy um, and trying to control violence and, and maybe create some kind of, again, social cohesion and, you know, build up their neighborhood from the, from maybe from the ground up instead of have, asking for, you know, the help of the federal government or the city government. Yeah. Well, they, I mean, they had to do both uh, just to address this idea of building up the neighborhood from the ground up. They, central dilemma of Bed-Stuy in the 1950s and 60s and one of the central dilemmas of neighborhoods today is uh, a lack of investment and a lack of capital. And 
the New York in, the, in that time was a period where there was a tremendous amount of um, industry leaving the city. Uh, lots of um, longtime homeowners, most of them white, leaving the city. Uh, neighborhoods like Bed-Stuy were redlined. I don't know if you want to talk about that at some point, but redlining was systematically starving those neighborhoods of access to capital, to investment, to mortgages. So the um, kind of parameters of grassroots activity had to also take into account the fact that there were these enormous structural forces that were making the neighborhood a place that was disempowered. So one of the questions that I'm trying to address in my book is like, to what extent is it actually empowering to put power in the hands of neighborhoods, to ask neighborhoods to rise up and start to control their own environment where they can't control these huge forces relating to structural changes in the economy, disinvestment, and then obviously the geography of racism at the time. Um, with that said, what do they do? Well, they um, one of the big things was just organizing. And this is where Elsie Richardson was central. She um, would talk about uh, later in life how they used to go into every single store. They'd go every, into every barber shop, uh, into every bar, and they would try to get people to join their initiatives, uh, be it initiatives to clean up blocks. This is where the block associations were really influential. Um, to revitalize brownstone facades. Um, a later group, Kennedy's group, the Restoration Corporation, uh, put together this program called the Community Home Improvement Program, where they would uh, hold competitions every year for different blocks to petition for money um, for revitalization of those blocks. Uh, the gang programs were a really big part of the early war on poverty. There was an organization called Bed-Stuy Youth in Action, which uh, Richardson was a, a big part of founding that became the designated war on poverty organization in Bed-Stuy. And the fact that um, it was called, it was about youth, uh, but it was meant to fight poverty indicates kind of the connection that they were making. So Youth in Action did all sorts of things, uh, programs for um, teenage mothers to help them go back to school, uh, programs for young women who had dropped out of the workforce to help them get clerical jobs or paraprofessional positions homework study programs, uh, putting together a Head Start Center in the city when federal funding came through to start this you know, early childhood education program for low-income families. So there was a lot of like attempts to organize people and then a lot of attempts also to manage the inflow of money um, as it came from the city government and the federal government and divert it into kind of useful, uh, useful programs. Yeah, all of those programs uh, sound fantastic. But uh, again, one of the things I was trying to figure out while reading your book is um, because now we have a lot of how many years since the, the, the passing of the, the war, uh, the, since the war on poverty, or the Great Society, probably over 50 years now. And um, people are trying to figure out was it successful was it not you you read these books sometimes even about the new deal uh how many programs were actually you know prolonged poverty in some cases or whatever the the, the analysis is um how successful were these programs in bedside or the ones that you know uh that you just alluded to with the tutoring and uh, maybe after school activities. So kids, you know, maybe stay off the streets and they maybe stay in school or they, you know, play a sport or whatever it might be uh, with uh, help with homework. And obviously education was central to their initiative because they saw it as a way maybe out of this rut that the community was in. So how was, how successful were these programs? Uh do you want to talk about the war on poverty kind of writ large and then get into the, the local level? Well, I think because uh, you wrote about the local level more yeah. so. Yeah. Well, how do you see? Oh, better question is, is it a micro is it a microcosm of the actual uh, war on poverty? Yeah, that is it. That is a good question. So. Um, I mean, 
So to, is it a microcosm of the larger war on poverty? There, there, there has been an increasing kind of body of literature in the last, let's say, decade or so, um, starting to say that the war on poverty was actually a lot more successful than it's been given credit for. And one reason your question is a really good one, and also reason why it's, it's been hard to measure, is that it was such a decentralized set of programs in terms of the community action approach. So there were a thousand different communities that had community action programs. Um, it's really difficult to measure each one of those communities separately and say, was it successful here? Was it successful there? But a lot of case studies have come out in recent years showing some of the successes. Uh, and you know, I'll get to, to Bed-Stuy in a second. Uh, from a macroeconomic perspective, it does seem like the war on poverty actually did score quite a bit of success. So um, taking the official poverty rate, uh, which is an imperfect statistic, uh, but nonetheless what they were using, poverty declined from around 24% uh, of Americans in 1960 to uh, just over 11% in 1973. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and in, in that year, 1973, the official poverty rate was the lowest ever in American history up to actually 20, 2019. 2019, it dipped below 11%. Yeah, you wanna? Yeah, sorry, let me jump in. Uh, I, I apologize for interrupting your thought. Um, did they change the metric for measuring poverty during those years? Was it, because that's 13% and what you said, just a decade, right? It's a thirteen percent drop. That that's that's very drastic. Yeah. Uh, they change the statistics in any way how they measure poverty. Oh, so it's just purely, uh, well, you could say purely because of the Great Society. And there was a lot of. I mean, the economic growth was very rapid in the sixties, uh -huh. uh, and you know, because of the Great Society is actually a good way of putting it. How much of that is because of the war on poverty? Uh, a huge contributor to that, for instance, was the Medicare program. Uh, which uh, took um, old age poverty, uh, which was a huge issue prior to Medicare and you know, dramatically reduced old age poverty. And Johnson actually thought of programs like Medicare and Medicaid um, and aid to um, primary and secondary education, which are all great society programs. He thought of those as part of the war on poverty. And those were national programs. Food stamps was another one. And people have done research also on like consumption-based poverty rather than looking at income, but instead looking, looking at the way people consume goods. Uh, so that way you can take into account kind of um, aid in kind that people would receive that aren't necessarily income. And they've, they found similarly like quite dramatic reductions in poverty uh, through, through the late sixties and early seventies, and then pretty much a plateauing ever since. So I think, and, and incidentally in, in the reason you know 1973 might be a good year to think of is because Nixon officially ended the war on poverty at that point, though many of the programs persisted. So it does seem like the war on poverty had some pretty sub substantive effects and many of the programs that we were just talking about, Medicare and Medicaid and food stamps and community development grants and all sorts of things like that had start as well, have endured. And they continue, I think, to have pretty positive effects in the lives of those people who benefit from them. And maybe this is another question for later. It seems like the Biden administration is kind of trying to jumpstart a second war on poverty of sorts. In terms of the local level, one reason, uh, and I wasn't trying to dodge your question earlier, but one reason it's a little bit difficult to say is that um, something that happened a lot in the 60s and 70s and 80s for people who lived in neighborhoods like Bed-Stuy and were able to gain upward mobility is that they moved out. So concentrated poverty became significantly worse as the decades went on. And so uh, Bed-Stuy is an exceptional neighborhood in part because of the, the brownstones there and because of its existence in New York City and the amount of gentrification that's happened in the last few, few decades. Uh, but many other urban neighborhoods that maybe didn't have those kind of advantages um, or disadvantages, depending on your perspective, many urban neighborhoods became places of extre extremely um, concentrated poverty. And those people who were able to benefit from the great society programs and pursue upward mobility didn't really wanna stay there and often did, did move. Uh, so that makes calculating it difficult. Now, 
you have to come to the question of motive. So when you say, was it a success? Success for whom? What was the war on poverty really about? So we've, we've kind of assumed up to now that uh, setting aside political kind of motives for people like Johnson and Kennedy, that ultimately the goal probably was to do something noble and good. But that's only kind of one side of the equation here. And we've talked a lot about youth crime and gangs um, and urban uprisings. There's certainly a way in which for policymakers like Mayor Wagner in particular, who talked about this a lot, uh, Kennedy who talked about this and Johnson, who also launched a war on crime in 1965, that the war on poverty was in some ways a way of diffusing urban unrest. And it was a way of taking the energies and kind of the positively directed energies of urban neighborhoods to, and, and throwing a little bit of money in there uh, to try to tame what they saw as the potential for real full out kind of um, violence and revolution maybe even in the neighborhoods. So if that's the goal, then the measure of success has gotta be something pretty different from actually addressing poverty. And I don't think it has to be, again, either or. I don't think like one trumps the other, but there's certainly a, a, a strand of war on poverty thinking that was about like stabilizing neighborhoods um, and tamping down on crime. And that obviously failed. Uh, and um, in many ways, kind of that strand of the war on poverty led into the war on crime and the war on the poor more generally. Um, Finally, motives of people like Elsie Richardson and the Restoration Corporation that she co-founded with Kennedy, uh, again, they didn't talk all that much about fighting poverty. It was certainly something that they wanted to do, but it was much more community directed in terms of, you mentioned crumbling infrastructure earlier. It was about revitalizing Bed-Stuy in some ways to make it a place where middle-class people could live, um, fixing up the brownstones, uh, maintaining the community organizations, funding businesses, building this big shopping center, Restoration Plaza uh, on Fulton Street, uh, building kind of a, a commercial corridor that would, would lead to Bed-Stuy remaining a vibrant urban neighborhood that was a desirable place to live. And that's not something that you can really calculate in terms of poverty rates. Uh, so I'll, I'll stop there. Well, in some ways, if that were her intention, which it was, uh, it succeeded. Because if you look at Bed-Stuy today, it's way different than when I was a young kid, you know? Uh, so I can only imagine how different it is than, you know, than 30 years ago or something like that. Um, so can you, can you maybe discuss that a little bit? How, how has Bed-Stuy changed from let's just say in the 1940s to the present. From the 1940s to the present is, is, is a huge change. So um, yeah, in 1940, Bed-Stuy was still a majority white neighborhood. And uh, it was uh, changing very rapidly in terms of its demographics um, and its, its class structure. So from, you know, from the 1930s up through the 60s, uh, there was a huge demographic shift and a huge influx of kind of broadly speaking, three populations of people. One was people coming from the South. Um, and those, many of those folks were um, fairly uh, unskilled laborers um, without a lot of financial capital behind them. Although there were a lot of kind of ministers and civil rights leaders who came up from the South and settled in Bed-Stuy. Uh, another group of people coming into Bed-Stuy at the time were uh, coming from Puerto Rico, and we haven't really talked about them yet. You know, I've talked mostly about Bed-Stuy as a Black neighborhood, uh, but there was a not insubstantial population of Puerto Ricans, most of whom lived in the kind of northern part of the neighborhood, closer to Bushwick and Williamsburg. Um, and finally, there were a lot of um, West Indians or children of West Indians coming into the neighborhood, and many of them, like Elsie Richardson, and a lot of the kind of political... Uh, and activist leaders in the community ended up becoming homeowners. And those folks uh, and their children and their grandchildren and now their great-grandchildren have kind of stayed in the neighborhood. It's not to say that other folks haven't, but when you think of like the 
brownstone blocks of bed uh, uh, which are currently you know, gentrifying very rapidly, um, turning over to a lot of newcomers. The people who, who, who settled there um, fixed up those houses um, and built community on those blocks, they kind of came in around the 1940s and then passed those on to their children and their grandchildren. How has it changed since the 70s and the 80s? Well, um, the neighborhood became famous in part. Uh, it was not a well-known neighborhood uh, until about the late 60s. Uh, it became kind of uh, in some ways promoted by the Kennedy people and others in the media as quote, America's largest ghetto. Uh, the boundaries of Bed-Stuy were kind of progressively enlarged as more and more black people moved there. It was, it was a neighborhood whose, whose boundaries were kind of fluid depending on who was living there. And gradually by like the late sixties, the term Bed-Stuy was kind of encompassing a geographic area with 400 and 450,000 people living in it. So neighborhoods that we would today think of as Crown Heights or Clinton Hill uh, or part of Brownsville, these were all kind of considered quote unquote Bed-Stuy in the, in the 60s. Um, since the kind of early 80s, Bed-Stuy has had a lot of, uh, um, a lot of people moving in to, uh, to the brownstones and a lot of uh, gentrification. And I don't know if you want to talk about that. Uh, uh, I feel like that's kind of on pause or was on pause for a few minutes because of COVID and has ramped back up in, 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 recent, in recent months. Uh, but that's kind of, I think, posed a lot of interesting questions and dilemmas for people who lived in the neighborhood and stuck through it for, for years and years. Yeah, so uh, obviously community activism was very important to the history of Bed-Stuy. Is it still very active now, or is it completely different than, you know, when Elsie Richardson was running the show? Yeah, I, th I think it. Is, I think it is different. I think you know, activism everywhere is different now from when Elsie Richardson was was running the show. Um, there's this really interesting meeting that happened in um, 1977, 1978. Uh, which I talk about in, in the epilogue of my book, where all of these activists were kind of the main characters of, of the 1960s portions of the book, sat together in a room in, you know, in this late 70s New York City moment where you know, everything seemed to be falling apart. And they talked about like, where's our, where's our momentum gone? What happened to all of our activism? What happened to all of our hope? Um, and so I think that that was a unique historical moment of, of you know, energy in the 60s. And, and that kind of activism went away and changed. Uh, the, also similarly, the kind of forward momentum that the Bed-Stuy Restoration Corporation brought out of the 60s and into the 70s of community development. And this was the, the Kennedy Initiative later headed up by Franklin Thomas, who later became the head of the Ford Foundation. That too uh, wasn't able to survive the 80s. So that was about having this one big community development corporation, gaining money from foundations and from the government and like buying up properties, revitalizing them and then selling them on the cheap to people in the community or funding small businesses or doing this community home improvement program. Uh, that was really successful in the seventies. So much so that the Bed-Stuy Community Development Corporation became a model for corporations all around the country. Well, that proved unsuccessful when the funding got cut. And then what are you going to do? So in the 80s, with all of the cuts to urban programs, that that form of development became much more difficult to push forward. And when I was writing the book, I interviewed the um, head of the Restoration Corporation, Calvin Granham, uh, and, and asked him, you know, what what can your organization that was so powerful in the 60s and 70s, and is still around today, you know, at least it, it survived all these years, it's pretty impressive. What can you do about things like gentrification and the changes in the community? And, you know, he told me some stuff about cultural preservation and bringing together people and passing on information and letting tenants know about their rights. And, but he said, ultimately, we're dealing with global capital, man. And there's, there's only so much that we as a community organization can do. 
to deal with like the influx of global capital when it discovers Bed-Stuy. And I think that's, that's certainly true. Uh, one form of organizing that I think is very strong there now and is strong all over the place is organizing against police brutality. And there are many young activists coming out of Bed-Stuy uh, who were at the forefront of the, the BLM movement um, for the last few years. Some of whom are actually, you know, at very young ages now running for elected office. Um, so to maybe to begin wrapping up, because I know you have to go in a few minutes. Uh, I, I usually wrap up my podcast. Obviously, there are topics I really wanted to touch on, like redlining and maybe on a, a future date, we can we could talk about it again. But um, I usually wrap up with two questions. Feel free to order uh, answer them in whatever order you prefer. One is if you have any, because I've had guests that have no, uh, have none, what gives you hope for the future? Uh, and whether it be, you know, your students or the city, uh, federal or, you know, foreign policy, whatever, whatever you want to talk about. Mm -hmm. And the second question is what are five books on any topic, whether it's fiction or nonfiction that you would recommend, uh, to anyone? Yeah, I think students are a good one to, to say what gives me hope for the future. Uh, just a word about my school. I teach at this place called Bard High School, Early College in Queens, uh, which is a really interesting experiment in um, offering new ways of thinking about the transition from secondary education to higher education. And our students take college level classes in what would be 11th and 12th grade um, graduate with an associate's degree that they can then transfer into two, up to two years of college into any CUNY or SUNY institution or any other institution that can take their credits. And so I'm teaching this college level class that I started off talking about, about Cold War America, uh, for college credit to students who would be in 11th or 12th grade at any other school. And um, I see you well, I'm, 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 I'm actually baffled. I didn't know this was a thing. Uh, did you, you're saying, so by the time they graduate high school, they have an associate's degree. Am I, am I getting that correct? Yeah, correct. Is this a private school or is it a it's charter a, school? It's a DOE school. Uh, it's a screened DOE school and it's um, co-sponsored by Bard College. Uh -huh. So Bard College has schools like this in a variety of cities. There's one in Manhattan, one in Queens, Newark, Baltimore, New Orleans, DC, Cleveland. Uh, <clears throat> the network is growing. So it's kind of a cool uh, way of keeping yeah. engaged, cutting down on college costs, allowing people to pursue things that are maybe a bit more interesting than standard fair high school curriculum. And <clears throat> I like it because I get to ask them uh, questions that are, that are really challenging and to see them respond. And it's been a really, really hard time for a lot of students. We're still learning on Zoom. A lot of them have really struggled, but um, you know, today I, I was with them and gave them Johnson's Great Society speech, his address at the University of Michigan, May 22nd, 1964, and asked them to assess it. Um, what do you find inspiring here? Uh, what are the problems he's identifying? What are his solutions? And their discussion was just fantastic. They had so much to say about Johnson. They saw right through him, but they were also kind of interested in what he was proposing. And and then we looked at a document uh, put forward by the Students for Democratic Society in 1969 called Bring the War Home, where they uh, tie American intervention in Vietnam to all of the problems at home, racism, failing schools, urban crisis. Um, and I asked them about that one. Do you, do you find that inspiring? And they all found that way more inspiring than LBJ. So this like, not surprisingly really, but this uh, vision from the 60s the SDS chapter that became known as the Weathermen, which was super radical. Uh, even most students in the 60s didn't sign on to that particular vision of things. That was too far for them to bring the war home idea. But yeah, my students thought that was like, oh, that, that's a really smart analysis that, that works for us. That's kind of a, an intersectional, interconnected idea on American imperialism. And you know, we had to end class. We didn't get to go in, in, in as much depth as I would have liked, but those kinds of discussions give me hope. Um, and I think that uh, the students, particularly in Queens, 
uh, and from around New York City who I have are super smart and um, really kind of uh, refreshingly radical whenever I get a chance to actually press them and hear from them. Uh, books, putting me on the spot. So this is five books ever that I've ever read that, uh, or- No, 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 that you would recommend to anybody on any topic, fiction, nonfiction. Okay, well- It doesn't have uh, to be your favorite. It could just be- Yeah, yeah sure. Anything. I'll, I'll recommend one to you. I don't know if you've read it. This is actually like a new book. I have it right here, um, which I read and blurbed called The Fortress in Brooklyn. Um, it's about the Satmar Hasidim of, uh, of Williamsburg. Um, and it's fascinating book, a great history by um, Deutsch and Casper. Uh, and um, it actually, you know, ties in very much to what we were just talking about uh, because of the ways that the Hasidim of Williamsburg have actually been able to, uh, while being victims of gentrification in some way, also like basically like wage war on the gentrifiers uh, and find a way to carve out a as the book says, a fortress in Brooklyn for themselves. Yeah. They preserve a whole neighborhood to, to yeah. themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, it's, you know, at this point, encroaching on what has traditionally been a Black neighborhood uh, with, with mm -hmm. lots of tensions that may be subject for another podcast. Um, but I, how about a kid's book? I was uh, re recently uh, just finished reading uh, the first Percy Jackson book with my, with my daughter. Those are awesome. Yeah, it's great. The Lightning Thief. And we're going to yep. start book two today. Uh, I have to recommend it. Eric Foner. Um, have you ever read any of... Is his... it the founding, the, the historian, right? He's a historian. Yeah, yeah he was my teacher at Columbia. Um, wow. And uh, his, his most recent book is called The Second Founding. Second founding. Um, yeah. But uh, his kind of magnum opus was called uh, Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution. Uh, and it's an amazing uh, work of both kind of archival research and synthesis that really transformed the way people talked about reconstruction. Um, what else? What am I going to do next? Um, why don't I do uh, this one that I was just telling you about that I was reading just because it's here, uh, Building the Great Society Inside the White Johnson's White House by Josh. I Wilson. wanted to read that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm actually not done with it yet, but uh, it's uh, it's it's good. It's the kind of book that I think is uh, very absorbing for people who are new to the subject, but for people who've read a lot about the subject, it's still um, still pretty good. Uh, what I give you is my last one. I can help you out. Yeah. Yeah. Battle for Betsa. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, can't can't rep my own book. <laughs> well, I'll go. I'll go to one that that I teach uh, every year, and every single time I read it, it offers new pieces of wisdom. And that's Souls of Black Folk by W. B. Du Bois, uh, and um, just beautifully written. Uh, he's a historian. He's a poet. He's a uh, essayist philosopher, uh, an urbanist, uh, one of the founders of um, kind of urban sociology. And yeah, I learned something new from, from that book every time I read it. Great. Uh, Michael Woodsworth, thank you for coming on. Battle for Bed-Stuy. Thank you, Stanley. Nice Have a good you. one. Okay, bye.